Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome one more time to Encounter. I hope that your experience is a lot like mine in that when we went to online-only worship due to the weather last week, it creates like this desire in me to, to be gathered, to, to get together with other believers, to get together, to worship God together, uh, to, to do life together, as one of our values uh, stated. Um, if, you, uh, if you've been away for a little while or maybe you're just joining us now, we are in part two of a series called dangerous prayers. You may have uh, received one of these bookmarks at the door. Uh, it just kind of outlines the, uh, the, the series, the three weeks that we're, we're working on. We kicked it, kicked it off a couple of weeks ago with this, uh, the first dangerous prayer of search me, uh, where David gets on, he prays this, uh, uh, th- this psalm, he, search me, Lord, know my anxious thoughts. And remember, one of our takeaways there is, uh, is wherever your anxiety level increases, wherever your worry level kind of disproportionately goes up, it's usually that area where we have the hardest time trusting God. And so the dangerous prayer there is to get down and, and repeat those words, search me, Lord. You know, wh- where do I worry the most and thereby probably trust the least? Search me. Uh, today, we continue on this dangerous prayers series. And I, and I want to say this one. <laughs> Uh, not for the faint of heart. I think this is probably one of the most difficult ones. And, and I don't want to fault you or blame you if you hear what I've got to say, hear what the story that we're going to read has to say about our dangerous prayer and walk away from today and saying, I'm not ready to pray that. I want to give you that out to say, I'm, I'm not quite there yet, but stay tuned all the way to the ending because I think there's going to be a couple, of, uh, a couple of twists along the way. The reason why I say it's so difficult is that the prayer that we're going to pray this morning, that I'm going to encourage you to take a look at this morning, kind of goes against, directly opposed to everything that like this Americanized version of Christianity is about. Like this Americanized sort of twist or perversion of what the faith is originally supposed to be about. This thing is like, is like God exists, God is out there in order to help me get whatever it is that I want. Like God exists to kind of like level the, level the road, kind of flatten the obstacles and the barriers to help me more effortlessly or, or more smoothly achieve whatever it is that I want to achieve. This Americanized version, this perversion of Christianity that some of us have been cast in the past says God exists to help me become healthy, wealthy, and wise. And today's prayer is directly opposed to that thing. And I think some of the ideas that we're going to hear about this morning are going to be found profoundly challenging to so many of us. Because it does exactly the opposite of what we want God to do for us. The prayer that I'm going to encourage you to pray this morning, two simple words, break me. Break me, God. Not not break me, let me experience brokenness just for the sake of brokenness, but God, break me so that I can see that there's this greater purpose out there. Uh, Break me for a specific reason. Break my life down so that you can build it back up on a foundation that's even better. Break me. Uh, We're going to go into a story this morning, uh, but before we do, and kind of as we head towards that story, uh, what I'd like for us uh, together is to have in our in our in our mind, um, like an idea, have in our mind the area of so far our life's greatest brokenness, and it's usually something that we find very very difficult uh, to engage. We don't typically want to go there. Maybe maybe you look back and you're like, man, I've got like this this history of. 
I want to call it mental health, but there's nothing healthy about my past. And you're looking back and it's an anxiety thing. It's a depression thing. And you're going, when I think about brokenness, I I tend to think about this thing. When you look back, what is it for you? Uh, If it's not a, a mental health, mental wellness kind of thing, you look back and it could be some sort of a loss. You know, I'm sure there's people in this room who are like, I look back in my rear view, back in my life, and there have just been some devastating financial losses, just terrible financial decisions that I wish, I wish for the life of me that I could like undo and take back. And the best that I can do right now is just hide it. And I want to invite you, whatever the thing is, just to keep it, just to hold on to it for just a moment. Uh, As we just think about it, we think about financial loss. It could be a personal loss, somebody close to you. And it's like my, my brokenness that I'm thinking about is somebody who's very, very close to me and they just disappeared out of my life. Maybe they chose and maybe they broke my heart. Maybe there's a story of betrayal there. Maybe somebody got sick chronically and then they passed. And you're going, what was that all about? And I just want to invite you just to hold on to that thing for just a moment. It's possible for some of us, when you think of that thing of like brokenness, what jumps to your mind isn't an area of setback, but it's actually an area of triumph and victory. To everybody else, it looks that way. But to you, you're like going, if they only knew the rest of the story, it wouldn't look like that at all. As some of you know, encounter story, and, uh, and, and by God's grace, uh, yesterday, I got to celebrate uh, 14 years uh, anniversary of the ordination of the, the ministry. So I became a pastor 14 years ago yesterday, and it's just, it's an awesome thing, and I'm, and I'm so humbled that God has kept me around this long and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, okay, we'll do that. He gets the glory. Uh, if you're kind of like keeping track of math and timing on some of this stuff, you know, wait a second, Encounter didn't start until October. So uh, my wife and I kind of set out this work and along with uh, about a dozen others or so kind of joined alongside shoulder to shoulder. In January, we started this thing that would later be launched in October as Encounter Church. And it's easy to sort of tell this story in a way that's like, man, Everything that you hoped for, Dirk, everything that you prayed for came absolutely true as we look around this awesome community like Encounter Church and what God did with it and growing it up. And we say, how cool is all of that? And I've had like church planters in, in, in the past come up to me and be like, man, what's it like to like be successful and to do it? I mean, I'm looking at it and I know that it's going to be a lot of work, but man, you just got to tell me, Dirk, on the other end of all of this effort and on the other end of all of this work, you just got to tell me how... How worth it is it? And if I'm like brutally honest with you, I know the hurt of the last 14 years. And I know some of the loss in the last 14 years. And I know personally some of my very specific misprioritizations that I've done and that I'm guilty of, that I lay at the Lord's feet and I'm like, this is just sinful. This is, this is pride. This is ego. This is not what you would have had for me. And I look back and I'm like, was it worth it? I want to just invite you to hold that thing. That you look back, maybe it's a mistake, maybe it's a regret. Maybe, like I said, it was a misprioritization in the past. But just hang on to that thing. 
as we read a story and we see what God does with some of this stuff. Um, what I'd like to do, if, you're, uh, if you'd like to follow along on your, on your smartphone, on your device, you can go to Mark chapter 14. We're going to go to Mark chapter 14 this morning, and uh, I'm going to read a story for you and then make a, uh, make a couple of comments on it. We start off uh, Mark chapter 14 and pick it up in, in verse 1 here, and we go, now the, the Passover... Um, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days, two days away. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So just kind of set the stage, the scene of what we're doing here is wherever Jesus went, this is almost the height of his, of his popularity. There's these massive crowds around him at all times. And the people, the, the chief priests are like, I we're very, feeling very, very threatened because of this and we need to do something. We need to stop this guy before the movement grows even bigger and we never will. So they want to they, they wanna arrest him. They want to kill him. But they're so afraid of the crowds that are around him all the time. They know that they have to do this in private, in secret. So it's like this very difficult thing. And if you've read the story, you know, this is kind of where Judas comes in and betrays Jesus to get him off secretly and quietly. But they don't want to do this during the festival, they said, or the people may riot and turn their backs. So Jesus' stock is riding high. Everybody's around and the priests are trying to do something about it. This is where it gets interesting. While he, while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. This is where the story takes kind of a weird twist, a weird turn for us this morning. Because Jesus is hanging out, he's reclining, that's what they did. They didn't have chairs, they had pillows. And he's hanging out in this guy's house. Simon, middle name, the last name, leper. Not really, but you get the idea. This is like how they identified with him, uh, with this guy. Now, leprosy is a horrible skin disease that ended up, it was fatal almost 100% of the time. It was just like this horrible thing. Why in the world do they call him Simon the leper? And I just I like pause that thing and just make a comment about our church and about how, kind of, you know, if you've heard some of this story, like leprosy, you're like, yeah, I kind of get that already. Why does Dirk have to like take some time to explain like what leprosy is about? One of, the, one of my favorite things about this church is how we come from just a huge variety of backgrounds, like all over the place, you know? A lot of the church in your background, different traditions. A lot of people around here just have like no church in the background at all. They're picking up the Bible seriously for the first time in their adult lives. And it's like, what is this story even about? Several years ago, we used, to, we used to do this song. It was called Jesus Paid It All. Did anybody remember the song Jesus Paid It All? Okay, we got a bunch of people. It is a great song right? And as pastor here at the church and, and as the church planner, like I said, I get to have a lot of influence over what we do around here. And I'm like, that song goes on repeat. Like every weekend we're playing Jesus Paid It All. It's such a good song, right? And we like singing this thing. It's like Jesus, you know, he's, he's cleansing souls. He's you know, fixing hearts and like this whole thing. He's, he's, he's cleansing the leper's spots, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's, it's so good. It's so biblical, this whole thing. Somebody comes up to me after church one time and they're like, dude, I know that you love this song because we play it like every weekend. And that's, that's not why I'm here. Uh, I have a question about the song and I'm like, great. You know, let's talk about how it's like rooted in the Bible and it points towards Jesus. It's the best song. And the person comes up and goes, I just got like a question. Why do we keep singing about Jesus cleansing the leopard's spots? 
And I'm like, we've been doing this thing for like six weeks on repeat. And I'm asking this church to clean the leopards, like the furry animal in Africa, like to clean the leopard spots. And this is just the assumption. So bear with me if we can and just kind of hang out on this thing for a little while. Simon the leper, it's not the leopard, okay? He's not like identifying as a furry animal in Africa. That's not the idea. What he's doing here is he's identifying as somebody who doesn't have leprosy, but he had leprosy. That is an important distinction. Because when somebody got leprosy, it was a death sentence. It's a horrible disease that starts in the extremities and kind of moves its way in. And it just, it just, it kills whatever, whatever it infects. And so, so first you lose the tips of your fingers and then your hands, your arms, your toes, your knees, your legs, and then it makes its way makes its way towards the center of your body and that's, that's where it ends you. It was also believed to be very contagious. And so if somebody contracted leprosy, please leave out now. My life would be enhanced and better off if I never saw you and talked to you again. Please go outside the city and quarantine over there. It was a horrible disease, not just because of what it did to your body, but what it did to your soul as well loneliness. That doesn't exactly fit well with the story that we have of Simon the leper hanging out and having a house party with Jesus and some of his followers, right? There has to be something else to the story. And why in the world would Mark, in telling this story, insult him by saying, Simon the leper, Okay, so a little, little fact about my family. Some of you know, he, he, he wears it out there. He shares the story a lot. Uh, my dad, who attends Encounter Kentwood, uh, in his past, maybe a little over 20 years ago now, he was diagnosed with melanoma. It's, just, it's a horrible kind of skin cancer, and it was very, very dangerous. And by God's grace, he's okay now, and things are, things are great now. It's, it's, it's not a part of his story today. But like, could you imagine in that moment when he receives that diagnosis, and they're talking about some very scary things in his immediate future, if somebody at church slaps him on the back and says, how's it going, melanoma Martin? It doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen unless... It doesn't happen unless something happened later that was miraculous. It doesn't happen unless something happened to redeem that entire situation. In the case of Simon the leper, Mark is identifying this guy not because he has leprosy, because he had leprosy. And I can't prove it, but it's just my strong inclination that he met Jesus along the way and he did cleanse those spots. And he is made whole. And this, this party that he's having, this, this meal that he's having over at his house where Jesus and his entourage is inviting is his way of saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving my body back. Thank you for giving my relationships back. Thank you for giving me my life back to me. Everybody can come over here, not because Simon had lepers, has leprosy because he had leprosy. He's a guy like Lazarus. He's got one foot in the grave until he met Jesus. Now that's an awesome story until we think about it for a moment and what it means for each one of us today. Because what the author here, Mark, is subtly suggesting that we do is following Simon the leper's lead. And number one, we own our brokenness. 
I asked you a little bit earlier to, to consider for just a moment what the area of your past that you don't really want to talk about, that you'd be much rather, much, much happier to kind of hide away and seclude. And I think what Mark is suggesting here is to saying, what if you identified strongly with it? And said, so that is my story. I am going to own that thing. Like Simon has everybody together. Go ahead and bring it on. I am Simon the leper. One of the things that it does, when we, when we own that brokenness, one of the things that it does for Simon, it, it makes it remarkably easier, him remarkably more effective at, at connecting with other people with similar setbacks, with similar stories. I can only imagine what it would have been like for Simon to connect with somebody else who has leprosy. For Simon to go into that space and to, and to speak as to what they're facing and to speak into their deepest fears and to offer him his deepest and most profound hope. Because that's what these setbacks do. That's what these wounds which turn into scars do. Those hurts are going to be the source of some of our greatest ministry because it grows and it stretches the sense of empathy. And that's what Simon is doing here. He's going, this is me. I am the leper. And I want everybody to know it. Number one, he's owning his brokenness. Number two, he's not leaving it there. He's sharing the brokenness as well. Own your broken. Step two, share your broken. And that's what we see happen in the next line in the story. Okay, he's not even the main character in the story. Okay, we've, we've got other characters. Uh, this time we've got, a, we've got a woman who comes on. And, um, and this woman comes with, uh, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Not alabaster, couldn't afford it, okay? When he says very expensive perfume, he means very expensive perfume. We're about to find out that this perfume that she brings is something like a year's wages. And so it's, uh, it's tax season around right now. And some of you are like getting W-2s and like you know, trying to figure out how much you made last year so that you can pay the government the right amount, which is just so fun because you don't know what it is, but if it's wrong, you'll go to jail. I love that. It's a great, it's a great system. You've seen the, seen the memes like, I'm so glad I learned about parallelograms in school. That's really helpful this parallelogram season, right? <laughs> you guys are figuring out like how much you made this past year. Uh, we find out a little bit later that this alabaster jar of perfume costs about a year's wages. So you just take that number in your W-2 box and say, that's about how much it costs. I don't know, maybe you made a lot of money last year. Maybe it was a little bit of money. It's an expensive jar of perfume, you would agree. Uh, we hear this story told to us in a, in a few different ways. And in one of them, one of the, the authors, don't just call her a woman, they call her uh, kind of like a, like a call girl, a harlot, uh, that, that this uh, alabaster jar of perfume was part of her working life. Keep in mind, first century AD, Middle East, it's hot, people sweat, people don't bathe all the time. So it just kind of has this aroma. Also, animal-powered carts kind of going through the streets and the kind of leftovers of the animal in the streets behind. It just had a smell in those streets that people probably just got so used to and they just kind of like tuned it out until they're walking down the streets and they get an air, they get a whiff of something not the streets, of something not the animal excrement. They get, they get a whiff of something that smells really, really good. And they turn around and they see what it is. No, no, this time they see who it is. It's that woman. I've met her before. She's standing in front of the little shop where she conducts business. 
You, you know because some of those smells bring you back to a certain time and a place. This jar represents her capacity to do that job well. It's like, it's like her calling card. She, she spends so much on her perfume, not because she's profoundly wealthy. She's probably forced into this life. She spends on the jar because it's an investment into her craft. You see where I'm going with that? And so she takes this jar, which represents not just her past, but also her potential success on into the future, and she does something incredible with it. She, one, broke the jar, and two, poured the perfume on Jesus' head. She broke the jar and poured the perfume. She broke the jar and she poured the perfume. We're going to come back to that. Uh, Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. I don't think they were going to give it to the poor. Like, that's just my strong inclination. Like, sure, it could have, in theory. They weren't giving it to the poor. Okay, Jesus knows this. And they rebuked her harshly. And so he turns around. He says, leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing. Very controversial statement. But Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. He's not saying, hey, don't worry about the poor. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. You can help them anytime you want. He's not saying don't help the poor. He's saying, like, go help the poor. Like, you can help them right now. You can help them tomorrow. They're going to be around, so go ahead and do something. That's why at Encounter, we do every, every November, doing good month. This past November, we collected enough money. We did a whole campaign. You guys just gave so much. We almost, this goes, almost came this close to, to renovating an entire house to give it to a, to a family experiencing homelessness to create more affordable housing right here in West Michigan through our partners at ICCF. I love it. But Jesus is not saying, hey, don't worry about the poor. You know, instead, break the jar and pour the perfume. But you will not always have me, he said. And she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So she breaks the jar, she, perform, she pours the perfume to prepare for the burial. And I'm just going to ask you to just kind of hang on to that for just a second because I want to drill down a little bit on the crowd in the scene when she breaks the jar, pours the perfume, and everybody says, what a waste, what a tremendous waste that was. Because I've seen people teach on this one, and I've, I've read a couple articles on it, and there's a lot of people, and there's a strong stream that kind of condemns the crowd and says, what a bunch of people with a lack of faith. Like, come on, you know? Like, have a little faith in Jesus and what he's doing. The Son of God is right there. How could you? I, mean, I, w- I would never be one that would call that a waste. You know, I would know that you're spending money in all the best places. You're anointing Jesus' body before burial. And I want to like go, oh, come on, right? Like, Really? We would be the ones to kind of call out the lack of faith. So I thought, hey, this would be fun. I, uh, I texted my wife earlier ahead of the week, and I'm like, hey, give me some examples, because I don't think I'd be the one who'd be like, oh, yeah, no, this is the right thing. I'd be right there with them, you know? What a waste, because of how cheap I am. <laughs> so I texted my wife, and I'm like, hey, give me just some little, a couple of light anecdotes about how cheap I am. Can you think of any times in our past marriage? And those terrifying little bubbles pop up, you know? <laughs> like thinking, thinking thinking, and I'm like, she's doing a doctoral thesis on like all of the times, and then they start just coming, just rapid fire. I'm like, okay, I got it, like arrow, you know, thumbs up, let's go hard, let's move on to something else. 
And just some, just some highlights that she throws. She's like, you know when we decided as a family to go skiing? Yeah. You know, you decided to take up snowboarding because skiing was too expensive and you found a snowboard for $20. That's why we have to wait for you at the top of the mountain every time. That's how cheap I am. I also left the $20 price tag on my snowboard so when Ski Patrol finds me on top of the hill, it's like, get me down. I'm not that committed. <laughs> I don't actually care about this thing. She's like, I was just shopping with our, with our daughter and we we're kind of going through the grocery store getting some, uh, getting some hamburgers. I bought the, the pre-made patties uh, for 39 cents more and my daughter, who sometimes shops with me, pointed out to my wife at that time, you know, dad would have gotten the bulk ground meat because it saves 39 cents a pound and that's almost a dollar. <laughs> and I'm like, my work here is done. Yes, I am. The point behind that is I just don't want us ever to pick up the Bible and to read ourselves into the hero of the story. Like, I love you guys. You're never the hero of the story. I'm never the hero of the story. I'm always the one who needs rescuing. I'm never David in the bottom of the valley slaying Goliath. I'm always the one on the top of the hill who needs to be rescued by my Savior, David, slaying evil. I'm always the one who needs to be rescued. I'm never the hero in the story. I'm not the one who would spoke up and said, no, this is, the, this is the right thing to do. But by God's grace, this woman in the story breaks the jar, pours it out, and she points clearly to the hero in the story, Jesus. It's about him. It's his story. I love that she breaks the jar and goes all in. I love that she pours the perfume. A, a perfume like that would have had some staying power. I think Jesus connects the story to his burial because a perfume like that doesn't, it's not the Axe body spray that gets washed off, you know, the next time you do laundry. It sticks around as quality perfume, quality cologne does. I think he's hanging on the cross. A little whiff of that still smells like the anointing of his body a little bit previous. He's connecting the, the brokenness to the, to the pouring. She's breaking her past and going all in on the future that Jesus Christ gives her. It's just awesome thing, awesome thing. And, and we can see because we're reading this story like 2,000 years later that God obviously did something with it. She owned her broken, she shared her broken, and God redeemed her broken. She got to step back and watch as God redeems this broken story. It's a beautiful thing, right? Because that's what God does. God specializes in the broken parts. And what we do, and I ask you to like think about what that thing is that you kind of want to hide, you kind of want it to just go away, you kind of want to outrun your past and hopefully nobody remembers it anymore. What we want to do is hide and shy away from the broken. And God is saying, no, 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 you got to own the broken. You got to share the broken so that I can glorify myself through the broken, that God is going to do something with it. But first thing you got to do is set it out there on the table. Because God specializes in the broken parts, doesn't he? God comes up to Moses and says, man, you have got a temper, dude. Killing the Egyptian, breaking the stone tablets, but, but we're going to do something with your life. We're going to shape you, we're going to form you, it's going to take 40 years in meeting, it's going to take another 40 years in the desert, but man, I specialize in the broken parts. Own your broken, share your broken so that I can redeem the broken parts he specializes with. He finds Gideon, Gideon, he finds hiding 
in a dried up well, a cistern. And he's trying to like thresh wheat, you know, and like use the wind to separate things underground because he's scared, because he's insecure, he's afraid. And God sends an angel to him and says, hail mighty warrior, come on. But I can do something with this because God specializes in the broken parts. He comes to impulsive Peter. Yeah, he's quick to jump out of the boat and follow Jesus. He's also quick to draw a sword and to chop off an ear. And God says, I can do something with an impulsive heart like this. I specialize, Peter, in the broken parts. John, you are arrogant. You are concerned with being greatest in the kingdom after Jesus. You know, which spot do I get to sit on on your left or your right? Please don't tell me it's further than that, Jesus. I want to be right there with you. I'm special, right, Jesus? And God turns him out to be the disciple of love and humility. He specializes in the broken parts. Own your broken, share your broken so that God can redeem your broken parts. Part of how he's going to redeem that is just an observation connecting you with other people. I've just observed throughout, throughout ministry that if you want to really, really impress people, focus on your strengths. If you want to impress people, make sure that they don't get close enough to you to, to be able to see your blemishes, to be able to, to see some of those wounds and scars on your heart. Keep them at arm's distance. If you want to impress people, focus on your strengths. Awesome. Good for you. You'll have very little impact and very little influence in this world, at least not for much good. If you want to connect with somebody, if you truly want to influence somebody, don't focus on your strength. Focus on your weakness. This is my broken. This is my setback. This is my weakness. This is my greatest area of hurt. And I have a strong suspicion that my greatest area of ministry is going to come directly from my greatest area of hurt. I have seen that around here time and time again. We have groups around here that have gathered around anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, pornography addiction, substance abuse, abortion, bankruptcy, grief, and the, and the list goes on because people have raised their hands saying, this is me, this is my story. I'm owning it, I'm sharing it so that God can redeem it for something awesome. And I'm telling you, he does because God specializes in the broken parts. Now I made a little lighthearted comment earlier on, uh, on, my dad's, on my dad's cancer journey by, by calling him Melanoma Martin. And I, and I can make that lighthearted a little bit because of what, of what God did with it. Because it's a little bit of a Simon the leper situation. You know, it wasn't always that way though. There was a time when I, ne- I never would have done that. Because it looked very, very dark and very, very bleak for a while where he would go into his appointments and the doctors would talk to him about getting his affairs in order. You know, not, not wanting to put timelines on anything, but it's probably a good thing to be prepared. You know, he's he's kind of carrying this thing around and two things happen. The first thing is in a different life. He's a probation parole officer. You know, while this is, while this is going on, and he did that for, I think, around 30 years. But uh, he would sit down with some... Uh, some particular individuals, the, the joke was, the difference between my congregation and his is that his was a little bit more convicted of their sins. <laughs> I love it. Feeling very much his calling to be a light in a dark place. And he's talking to one um, returning citizen right around this time. That's, that's what you call someone getting out of, out of prison. And he just received some devastating financial news. 
I believe it was cancer as well. And again, to this gentleman, let's get your affairs in order. And he's angry. He is fuming. He's angry at the system. He's angry at everybody around. He's angry at himself. He's angry at God for allowing this. Prison took most of my life, and now cancer is going to have what little I have left now that I'm out. You know? And my dad is like trying to sit there, you know, and talk him through and offer some empathy, offer him some hope along the way. And he looks at him and he goes, what do you know, Martin? What do you know about what I'm experiencing? And he gets these little tears in his eyes and he's like, actually kind of a lot. And if you, if you can picture this scene, because like what better picture of the gospel is this? Probation officer and parolee sitting in an office and they're both crying and they're both hugging and they're both exchanging these, these promises of, of hope and something better. And, and I'm so proud. I get to share that my dad led that man to Christ. And I believe he's with Jesus today because of that conversation. Not because somebody kept him at a distance and impressed with strength, but no, got right down in there and connected in their mutual weakness and frailty of life and holding it all so loosely, but pointing at the one who is ultimately broken and poured out for each one of us. Jesus is the hero in the story and he specializes in these broken parts. The other thing that happened as a result of that story is we do these prayer meetings at church, just, just praying for him, praying for the situation, praying for health, praying for wisdom, praying for all the things. And it's hot, and we're all kind of gathered together, and I'm in the center of it all with my little family and him, and I watch as my dad is crying, we're all praying around him, and I realized that day church was not something that you went to once a week, maybe twice a week if you're super Christian. Church is this community of believers broken and poured out like our Savior was broken and poured out. And I'm looking at all the hard parts of church and all the hard parts of ministry and the lost friendships and the misprioritization and somebody saying, is it worth it? It's so worth it. It's broken and poured out. We're gonna do that now. We have a communion station set up and uh, just some logistics on how that's going to go. Um, at the end of this time, I'm going to ask everybody to come forward. And uh, if you could use, at all of our locations, use the center aisles to come forward. Even if you're in the front, it's kind of like a, a weird thing, you know, on the, on the sides. But like, use the center aisles to come forward and the outside aisles to return back to your seats. And it kind of flows a little bit better that way gluten-free options available, all that stuff. But, but, but hear this. When Jesus instituted this, he took bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the, the cup and he, he poured it out. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. When you eat the bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes again. My question for you, and maybe a reflection question as you come to the table, what did he mean when he said, do this? Because sometimes we're like, oh, I know what he meant. He meant that 2,000 years later, we'll take a little bit of bread and we'll take a little bit of juice and remember the, the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes, that's why we do it. But there's also something profoundly more than that. I think Jesus was saying, do this. Not just eating and drinking, but living 
a kind of broken and poured out life. Do this in remembrance of me, not just this act right now, but this act was to, was to reorient our whole hearts and lives around living like him, a broken and poured out kind of life, that you would own your broken, share your broken, and God would be glorified by redeeming all of those broken parts that he and he alone specializes in. My friends, I don't want you just to walk up to this table. I want you to run on up to this table because we need this and we need this meal. We need this nourishment. Would all of you stand up in all of these locations? As we come forward and we celebrate this act here in just a moment. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke this bread. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink this in remembrance of me. We're proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.